I'm always with the disciples in Luke 18. I love to see the babies going out. <laughs> Get the babies out. I'm all for it. You understand why, of course, don't you? If, 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 the, if the devil can't keep you out of the meeting, he'll try to keep you out of the message. And uh, very often, the babies are the tool. Uh, I should know, I have one running about the back who's been well warned in English and in Polish at the budge. Uh, you join us if you're visiting in the middle of a series that our pastor has uh, given to us entitled Broken. Uh, we've been looking over the past few weeks really from Christmas how God uses broken things. And if you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to Job chapter 17 and to the portion of Scripture that our pastor has assigned to me. Uh, Job chapter 17, please. And if you could keep your Bibles open, maybe if you've access to the Scriptures uh, on our pastor's not here, a phone or something, and you're able just to look at the Bible on it and nothing else, uh, then do that. We want you to see that what we're saying is actually in the Bible. Job chapter 17, please. Uh, Job continues, my spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you will not let them triumph. Who informs, he who informs against his friends to get a share of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples. I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stares himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you, come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past. My plans are broken off, the desires of my heart. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol is my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? Amen. We know again the Lord will bless the public reading of his own word. Let's just quickly pray. Father, with Job this morning we say, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the face of the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my flesh be consumed within me. Lord, we thank you this morning for every single person in this building. We pray that you would give to us faith. We pray that by your Spirit you would grant to us wisdom. 
We pray, Lord, that if there be any underneath the sound of our voice who knows not you as a personal Savior, that you by your Spirit would draw them this very morning to our Savior, that they might leave this place knowing with Job that there is for them a Redeemer, one who will stand between them and God and plead their case. Lord, hear us today, we pray, in the precious and worthy name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You know, I always believe that for those of us who have the responsibility and indeed the privilege to preach and to teach from the Word of God, one of our duties is to preach and to teach in such a way that when your days of difficulty come, when days come upon you, when you feel yourself to be absolutely broken, that in those days you actually will not curse God or cause your faith in Him to be removed. I think that uh, even more than that, it is our duty to preach and to teach in such a way that when those difficult days do come and you are broken, to show you from God's Word that God has not actually abandoned you, that you remain the object of His love and care if you are His child, and that even in difficult, difficult days, there might be born in your heart worship and faith and trust, resting assured that God always builds. God always builds on broken ruins. Difficult days and tough times come to all of us sooner or later. This morning, please remember this. And write it down before it happens, because when it comes, it will feel absolutely absurd. It will feel undeserved. It will feel absolutely meaningless. And you may well cry out, why? 100 times to your Lord. That's why, brothers and sisters, the book of Job is so relevant because Job's suffering seems to have come out of nowhere and have no connection at all to the character of this man. The subject of the book of Job is that ever-present problem, the mystery of suffering, but not just the mystery of suffering, suffering in the lives of the good, indeed suffering in the lives of the godly. The intention in the book of Job is to show us that there is a loving, benevolent, divine purpose running through, threading its way through all the sufferings of the godly, that all of life's bitterest riddles could be reconciled and dovetailed perfectly to God's divine purpose. Did you and I have all the facts? Imagine, for example, if Job had have been able to see into the councils of heaven, as we do in chapters 1 and chapters 2, just before his trial came. Remember, the sons of God had to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also was there. God said, Satan, what have you been doing? He said, well, I've been walking up and down the earth and going to and fro in it. And he said, have you then considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth, one who fears God and turns away from evil. Imagine if Job had have seen all of that. And imagine if Job had have been able to see a way into the future. 
to the final outcome of his ordeal as God saw it, how differently in that trial Job would have reacted to it all. But that's the point, is it not? That's the point of the book of Job. That's what gives it its meaning for us. Job didn't know. He didn't see what had happened before. He couldn't see what would come. He didn't know. That is, beloved, through failure to appreciate that simple fact that many, many of God's people miss the message of the book of Job. From its early chapters, as I said, which shows us how Job's trial originated in heaven until the end of the book in chapter 42, which tells us of God's compensation to Job for the trials through which he passed. We have Job. We have Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. We have Job's wife, and they are giving their theories. They are giving their ideas from insufficient knowledge as to the purpose and the cause of this man's suffering. They knew nothing of the counsels of heaven which had preceded Job's trial. They knew nothing about the coming compensation that God would give him. They were just shooting off their ideas and their theories in the thick darkness, if you like, of their own lack of understanding. One commentator said of Eliphaz, and he is the first to speak, he said of Eliphaz that he is a theologian chilled by his own creed. A theologian chilled by his own creed. Do you know I've met Christians like that? Their holiness can be cold. It's like love served with ice. Brothers and sisters, could I encourage you to beware? Beware of applying principles at arm's length to a problem that is too deep for your arm's reach. Beware of applying arm's length principles to a problem that is too deep for your arm's reach. This was Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. Let's look at the man Job, for example. In chapter 1 and verse 1, he was blameless. Uh, blameless. He was upright. He turned away from evil. He feared God. In other words, if suffering is intended as a punishment for evil, then Job is not a very good candidate for calamity. He had seven sons. He had three daughters. And living in a day when the government did not provide to the elderly, a man's wealth ultimately lay in his kids. And having seven sons and three daughters that could provide for him in his old age, this man was blessed indeed. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen. He had 500 donkeys. He had stacks and stacks of servants so that the Bible says he was the greatest of all the men in the East. And from verse 13 in chapter 1, we can read there how the storm began to gather above his head and indeed how the rain began to descend in terms of calamity and suffering and trial. The Sabaeans came. They killed his servants and they took away his oxen and his donkeys. Verse 16 of chapter 1, not men this time, but an act of God as the insurance companies tell us. Lightning fell from heaven and burned up his sheep, his servants who were looking after them. 
In verse 17, the Chaldeans came in three groups and took away his camels. In verse 18, a great wind came and leveled the house that belonged to his eldest son, crushing everybody who was in it, all of Job's kids, his sons, his daughters, gone in an instant. And all that happened before that was only quantity to him. Now this was quality. This was his kids, and they could not be replaced. All gone in one afternoon. And why? Because Satan said to God, does he fear you for nothing? You've prospered him. You've granted him riches and wealth and everything else as has been leveled at many's a child of God over the years. Ah, he's only good living for a living. That's what Satan said to God. And God said, right, he's in your power. And he gave Job over. And Job was blasted by all of these afflictions from the devil. But Satan's not done. Chapter 2 begins, and again, he is before God. And God said, look at Job. He still retains his integrity, even though you moved my hand against him. And of course, Satan, you can almost hear the hiss of the serpent. Ah, skin for skin. Do you not put a hedge about him and all that he has? But you touch his health, you touch his body, and he will curse you to his face. In other words, he's just a mercenary. He only serves you because you give him health and strength and well-being. But you touch that, and he will curse you to your face. Again, isn't that strange that God would set up his servant Job like that? As I told our small group, it's like someone breaking into Peter Lunds, you know. And the devil running about and God saying, where have you been? He said, I've been up and down in the earth. Well then, if you've been up and down in the earth, you must have noticed my servant Job. There's none like him in all the earth. Somebody breaking into lunch jewelers there and coming down with a torch and saying, hi boy, what are you at? I'm just having a wee nebby here at the Rolex watches. Oh, is that right? Well, what about this one over here? Look at this. Isn't this a belter? Oh, what's God doing? Setting Job up? Just as Job, brothers and sisters, is recovering from the shock of losing his wealth, his possessions, and his kids. Can you see him? Because Satan went out and he struck Job with sore boils. Beloved, listen, when you read sore boils, don't be thinking this is a bite of the measles. He looks down at his hands. His head maybe begins to itch right down to the back of his neck. And in his very hairs and his face begins to swell. His chest is roaring red. Down to his legs. Right down, he says in chapter 7, that the very soles of his feet, boils begin to emerge. The very disease itself made Job an outcast. And so we find him at the end of chapter 2, sitting essentially in a rubbish dump outside the city, scraping himself with broken pieces of pottery to try and get some relief from this horrific itch and pain. If you jump forward to chapter 7 and verse 5, it gives you a more vivid description of what this was, this disease. It produced worms and it got clogged with 
dirt and filth. His skin hardens, he says, and then it just breaks out afresh. In chapter 7, he says, this now had been going on for months, months. He had lost weight. His friends came. They didn't even recognize him. Brothers and sisters, this morning, is this the reward for reverence? Is this the reward for fearing God and turning away from evil? Is this it? As I've said, his friends come, and for seven days, they never said a word. He just looked at their friends, horrified by his appearance, devastated at the loss of his possessions, his kids, and his health. They never said a word. And that was good. Because the Bible says we are to weep with those who weep. But then sadly, brothers and sisters, they opened their mouths. And for 29 chapters in the book of Job, you have these arguments back and forward, back and forward. Eliphaz speaks. It goes in three cycles. Eliphaz speaks. Job replies. Bildad speaks, Job replies. Zophar speaks, Job replies. Then Eliphaz speaks again, and on this goes three times. By the time, brothers and sisters, we get to chapter 17 in our reading, Job is as low and as broken as he can possibly be. And so in verse 11 of chapter 16, here he is in chapter 17. Here he is right at the bottom. Look at it there if you've access to the Scriptures. How low is a person when he comes to this? My days are past. My life's over. My plans, they're broken off. Whatever goals, aspirations, dreams I had, they're gone. The desires of my heart, have none. So what's left? There's nothing for to hope for, better for to hope than, than the grave, than for death. That's why he says in verse 14, look at it. I've said to the grave, you are my father. I've said to the worm, you are my mother, my sister. He's thinking of himself now, brothers and sisters, as a corpse in the grave. It's a real cheery message, by the way, isn't it? <laughs> by the way, not my fault. It's our pastor's. And he's gone to do a wedding, so I can blame him. <laughs> <laughs> he pictures himself as a body in the grave. And then he says at the end of chapter 17, where then is my hope? Where's my hope? I don't know if you watched any of the Holocaust stuff from Holocaust Memorial Day, the survivors at Auschwitz, talking about how they were brought from Hungary in their Sunday best or their Shabbat best. And the lady says, the doors opened and we arrived in hell. And I wrote it down last night as I watched him talking. He said, we were confronted by the failure of man and the enigma of God's silence. Lady said, my 42-year-old father, strong, healthy, fit man, 
the cattle truck doors opened and he jumped out onto the platform and she said it was as if, as if he jumped into thin air. I didn't see him again. And one other lady said last night, you had to hold on to hope. Job had lost all sight of hope. You know, brothers and sisters, that makes agonizing reading there in chapter 17. And yet, you know what? As I sat all week and soaked and walked along my days with Job, I'm glad that's in the Word of God. Because sooner or later, we will walk this path. We may lose sight of hope. And yet, like Job, like Job, we will see our faith begin to arise as God himself becomes our reward. As I've said again, brothers and sisters, his three friends, they insist, they insist that suffering is the reward for evil. And for 29 chapters, that's their argument. Job, what have you done? What have you done? If you confess it, you know, God will forgive you. What have you done? You're bound to have done something because after all, look at how you're suffering. And they told the party line for 29 chapters, suffering follows wickedness. They just stick to their guns. They've got one bullet in their gun and they continue to fire it at this man. Suffering follows wickedness evil. Prosperity follows righteousness. What have you done, Job? And you and I know that that is not true. Some of the best and the godliest of people died young in life, and some of the oldest, most antagonistic of all of Christ's adversaries lived to a ripe old age. And we look at that and we say, what? In chapter 22, we have the final speech of Eliphaz. Eliphaz began with Job speaking to him. He may well have been insensitive and superficial at the beginning. By the time he reaches chapter 22, he is just absolutely brutal. If you can turn to it there in Job 22 and verse 5, look how Eliphaz finishes. Is not your evil abundant? There's no end to your iniquities. You have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. You've stripped the naked of, your, of their clothing. You've given the water to the weary to drink. And you have withheld bread from the hungry. That wasn't true. That was nonsense. Because remember what God had said about him. God said he was blameless. He was upright in all the earth. And Eliphaz comes and he says, you know what? There's no end to your iniquities. Thanks very much, Eliphaz. Don't let the door hit you in the head on the way out and bring me another broken piece of pottery there to scrape my boys and would you not clear off? That wasn't true. Those are the imaginations of a mind whose theology has collapsed. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, their theology, their ideas of God and the world and how God works in the world and in the lives of the righteous, their ideas just collapse. It's incapable of handling reality. Their theology is lying in ruins at the feet of this man's integrity. And it's so ridiculous, brothers and sisters, that when Bildad, he makes his final speech, he just has six wee verses about universal sinfulness. sinfulness. And when it's Zophar's turn to speak, Zophar says, deadly squat. That's nothing. 
their theology just dwindles away. And remember what it was. Their theology was this, trouble comes to those who sin and the innocent do not perish. Watched a man last night, 82 members of his family said they did nothing, nothing, burned and gassed and shoveled into a mass grave. What did they do? Nothing. Decent neighbors, good moms, hardworking dads, religiously orthodox men and women, what did they do? Nothing. Suffering is the result of wickedness. Prosperity is the result of righteousness. But when you bring that and apply it to Job, it doesn't hold any water because Job is a good man. And yet he suffers far worse than many, many wicked people. The connection between wickedness and suffering in this world does not hold. And that's the point of 29 chapters of debate. Their wooden theology isn't big enough to cope with all the ambiguities that Job sees in life. Their theology, brothers and sisters, can't handle Job. And you know what they do? They distort Job. Be careful, brothers and sisters. If you've got a distorted theology, you're going to hurt people. You're going to hurt people because the only way you can handle reality to make it fit your bad theology is to distort reality and fit it in there. And by the time Eliphaz gets to chapter 22, he makes a wicked man out of Job. It's your fault. Are you having enough faith? Or whatever else it is. I have heard it for years. Off you had enough faith. I'm like, nonsense. It's not the way the world works. It's not the way God works. It's not in the Bible. Through all of this, brothers and sisters, and we turn a corner here, something is beginning to happen to Job, though. He's becoming stronger. He's becoming a stronger believer. His faith is increasing through these 29 chapters of continuing hammering. His faith is getting stronger and stronger. He asks questions like, shall we all go down to the pit? In other words, I know I've imagined, you know, the grave is my father and the worm is my mother and my sister, but you know what? Is that the end? Is that really the end? He begins to catch a glimpse of our Redeemer, someone who would stand between him and God and plead his cause and avenge him for all the wrongs done to him. He says things like, if a man die, shall he live again? He's catching a glimpse now, is he not, of another who would stand in a day of darkness and brokenness and sorrow and mystery and stand there with two grieving sisters and say, Mary, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he lives. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe that, Martha? It seems to me, brothers and sisters, that as Job relentlessly and successfully pushes back the arguments and the accusations of his friends, something deep down within him is beginning to gain strength. Something is winning. Something is beginning to clarify itself. And brothers and sisters, this happens in our lives. As you with that little mustard seed of faith and grace that you're given, 
to resist an opponent who threatens your faith in resisting and resisting and resisting, and new strength emerges, a new insight emerges, so that you turn away from the battle you're in. Your own thoughts are clarified. Your own confidence is more deeply rooted until the time, brothers and sisters, we get to chapter 19 and verse 25, these searchings after the prospect of eternal life, those searchings, they explode from the ground of unbelief. And Job says, no matter what, I know my Redeemer lives. And that one day he will stand upon the face of the earth. And even though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see God. He knew he had a Redeemer. Job, brothers and sisters, is finally sure that even if it takes through death, he's going to meet God as a redeemer and not as an angry judge, which is what his friends continually tell him God is. He will be redeemed from his misery. Job knew in that revelation that his judge would become his justifier. Job was in the midst of agony and suffering. And there were a lot of things, brothers and sisters, that he still didn't understand. But Job had grasped one vital truth. He was convinced that while there was no one to stand for him in this life, his friends have misunderstood him. All of his acquaintances have left him. Yet he had a redeemer who was his advocate and one through whom finally he would be acquitted. As we draw our thoughts to a close, this confidence in Job now, it doesn't totally solve his problems. He's still totally perplexed as to why he should have to go on suffering. He talks about that right on through to chapter 31. But his confidence in the eternality and in the reverse of his life in the age to come, it enables him to hold tightly to things that he loves very much. Two things, three things actually. He loves God's sovereignty, he loves God's justice, and he loves his own integrity, and he clings to that. Just quickly, brothers and sisters, as we close, because we want God to have the last word as he comes at the end and reveals himself to Job. From chapter 32 to chapter 37, we have a young man introduced his name is Elihu. And there we learn from Elihu something new. According to this young man, the suffering of the righteous, it's not a punishment for their wickedness. It's a refinement of their righteousness. The suffering of the righteous, it's not a punishment for their wickedness. It's a refinement of their righteousness. It's not preparing them for utter destruction. It's actually protecting them from ultimate destruction. The central lesson, brothers and sisters, of the book is this. The children of God who trust God, who are led by the Spirit of God, who are covered over by the righteousness of Christ, trusting in His finished work for them upon the cross, people that have been justified freely by the grace of God, they suffer. You've only look at our prayer lists to see how many of God's people suffer. But when they suffer, it is not a punishment. 
Christ has borne our punishment upon the cross and he will not allow you to turn around and say, I'm being punished. Paul said, God has not appointed us to wrath. Isn't that lovely? No matter what we'll go through in the days to come, know this, my brother, know this, my sister, God has not appointed you to wrath, but to obtain mercy through our Lord Jesus Christ, that whether we die or whether we live, we shall live with him. That's our hope. That's our hope. That's where our confidence is on those difficult days when you lie in that scanner and you wonder what is going on. There's no punishment for the children of God. There is only merciful, kind, gentle, and if necessary, severe surgery to conform you to the image of his son. And again, as I've said to to our small group, the pain then that you might feel in difficult days, the pain of being broken, brothers and sisters, remember, it is not the pain of an executioner's sword. It is the pain of the surgeon's scalpel. I'm doing this to heal you. I have a belter of a scar. I'd love to show you all, but it's in a bad spot. It'd be the last time I would ever preach behind this pulpit. But when I look at that scar, I remember that pain. That helped me. That enabled me to run again. Yeah, it was sore, but it was necessary. Suffering, brothers and sisters, is not dispensed willy-nilly amongst the people of God. It is appointed to us, individually designed As experts therapied by the loving hand of our great physician, its aim is that our faith might be refined, our holiness might be enlarged, our soul might be saved, and our God glorified. Six minutes and we're done. And there's actually seven on that clock, so that's good. Hey, Tim, you're still not done. Keep Keep her going. Listen, toward the end of chapter 37... Elihu has been speaking, and it seems as though a thunderstorm or a whirlwind is beginning to form in the skies above them. Elihu sees it coming, and he recognizes the possibility that God is about to speak, and Elihu closes his mouth. And in chapter 38, indeed, God begins to speak. And he says to Job in verse 3, I love this, dress yourself for action. In other words, stand up here like a man, and I will question you now, Job, and you make it known to me. In other words, God said, Job, you've been questioning me long enough. I've been in the dock long enough. I'm getting out now, and you're getting in. And God begins, brothers and sisters, 77 questions give or take one or two. I tried to count the question marks in the ESV Bible. About 77 questions, one after another, staccato fashion, boom, 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 boom. 77 questions. God begins this long interrogation of Job as he takes him on a tour of his creation. In verses 4 to 7 of chapter 38, he begins on the earth. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you determine its measurements? The implication being, Job, you weren't there. You don't know how I did it. And even if you did know, you couldn't do it anyway. Verse 8, he moves him from the earth to the sea. Again, Job, do you know how the sea is limited? Do you know upon its foundations it was set? No, Job, you don't know. You weren't there. You don't know. 
Verse 12, God focuses on the dawn and the sun coming up every morning over the horizon. Can you do that, Job? Can you do that, Job? I've always done that. I'll do it again tomorrow. I'll do it again the next day because that's what I do, Job. You don't know how I did it. And even if you did know, you couldn't do it anyway, Job. Do you know? Verse 16, he takes him to the bottom of the sea, as it were, right down to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, as it were, in the Pacific Ocean. He says, Job, have you ever been there? Have you ever walked along the Marianas Trench? Can you withstand the pressure of three miles of ocean above your head? You've never even left your hometown, let alone walk around the earth. And you call into question the way in which I run the world? Still not done, Job. Verse 19, let's look up. Let's lift our eyes now to the skies. Do you know where light lives, Job? Do you know where light comes from? Do you know how light can exist not only in straight lines but also in waves so that it defies the brightest of physicists? No, Job, you don't know. Verse 22, he talks to Job about the frost, the snow, the rain, the hail. He says to Job, can you whistle for the lightning? That lovely picture, I can't whistle or would have done a wee whistle. Only whistle like a silly way. I can't do a real manly way. But, but I, you know, can you whistle for the lightning, Job? No, you can't do it, Job. You can't do it. Verse 31 of chapter 38, he says, let's go a wee bit higher, Job. <laughs> let's, can you bind the chains of Pleiades? Or loose the cords of Orion and the stars? Do you guide the bear with his children? Do you know the ordinances of the stars? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Towards the end of chapter 39 and into chapter 41, he queries him about animals and birds and on and on and on it goes. Right into chapter 39. At the beginning of chapter 40, God stops and allows Job to respond. As it were, God takes a breath, speaking reverently. And after those first set of questions, Job is humbled. Because Job, he said things about God in his defense that weren't true. He said that God had become his enemy. God was not his enemy. Job, by this stage, had got the message. He's ignorant. He's impotent. He's utterly surrounded by mystery. Mystery above him. Mystery below him, mystery on his left hand, mystery on his right hand. He doesn't understand things over which he has no control. And we too, brothers and sisters, are exactly the same. We are surrounded by mystery, mystery above us, mystery below us, mystery to the right, mystery to the left. It doesn't matter that we're 300 years into the Industrial Revolution. We are surrounded by mystery. Job, brothers and sisters, has been brought to buy under the sovereign hand of his God. Because of all that he suffered and endured, God revealed himself to his servants. In verse 42 in chapter 5, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He's humbled at the end of chapter 39. He's repentant at the beginning of chapter 42. Beloved, there is in this story of brokenness and restoration so many lessons, absolutely so many lessons, that I must be honest, I struggled as to how best to bring this to an end. Because this is a series in itself. I said to Matt, you're giving me 42 chapters to cover in 40 minutes. John Calvin preached 159 sermons from the book of Job, and I get one. 
So I struggled, brothers and sisters, as to how to bring this to a close. But I want, brothers and sisters, to say two things, and with this we'll finish. The first is this. May God help us. May God help us to be satisfied today and tomorrow and for all eternity with the good and the loving and the holy will of God. Submit yourself to him. Rest in him. Believe, brothers and sisters, that he withholds from you no good thing. No matter how hard it looks on the surface, God withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. I had an illustration there from the life of George Mueller that I've skipped. Secondly, brothers and sisters, and with this I finish, I want to finish with Job's Redeemer and my Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because even though throughout the book of Job, Jesus Christ is not explicitly mentioned, Jesus Christ bought by his death every single benefit that you will ever receive from the book of Job. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is the story of the Son of God who lives an absolutely flawless life of righteousness so that we who have lived a life of continual sin may have a substitute, not only that his death can become our death, but his life can become our life. And the life of righteousness we feel to live, that righteousness can be given to us. Because he was broken on the cross, you don't need to remain broken. Aren't you glad this morning that we serve a God who knows what it is to suffer? I don't believe, brothers and sisters, in a God who came to earth to lie on a deck chair, as it were. The Christian believes in a God who hung broken and bloodied on a cross. He was forsaken that you and I might be forgiven. Not that we would have the answer to all of our questions, because on our best days, says Paul, we see through a glass darkly on our best days. Not that we would have the answer to all of our questions, but that we would have a Savior who can be trusted to bring us safely home to glory. And when our time comes to leave this world, our final hope, brothers and sisters, when our time comes to leave this world, our final hope will not be that we have lived an adequate life, but that we have an adequate Savior. May God bless his word to each and every one of our hearts for his own honor and for his own glory. Can I say as we close, if you're here this morning and you're not saved, and you would like to be, don't rush off. Stay behind with a prayer room there. People can pray with you. I'll be hanging about. Other brothers and sisters here, maybe friends with whom you've come, we'll be only too glad to take the time and pray with you and point you and commend you to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.